Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today we're going to continue with the discussion of intravenous vitamin C, how it can be used safely as a therapy for infection, cancer, and as a general tonic. I will also share what we've learned through research about dosing and infusion rate to make the drug intravenous vitamin C. Thank you to the Alliance for Natural Health USA. I'm proud to be a member of this fearless organization who lobby for our health freedoms. And thank you for joining me. Let's continue where we left off last time. We were talking about the legacy of the pioneers of orthomolecular medicine. These practitioners were able to keep the practice of intravenous vitamin C alive, albeit underground and not entirely recognized by conventional medicine. But this has enabled practitioners today to continue to treat patients with intravenous vitamin C and other vitamins and minerals in high doses to give the right dose at the right time to provide biochemical structure and function. Clinical uses of high-dose IV vitamin C include cardiovascular disease. That's part of the chelation therapy where vitamin C is at a 7 to 10 gram part of the infusate. It's also used in chronic fatigue. As you heard me discuss last time, it's used in infections, including sepsis. And we're going to talk about some of the trials in sepsis in the future. It's used to treat diabetes and, of course, cancer, among other uses. Today, I'd like to start by discussing the difference between oral and intravenous vitamin C. And I want to make it very clear that they act very differently in the body. A friend and colleague, Dr. Anitra Carr in New Zealand, has written extensively about oral vitamin C and has shown how it is a very powerful vitamin with many important properties. Different people during different stages of health need different doses of oral vitamin C. Healthy adults, for example, with a good diet are considered to be in a green zone requiring only minimal supplementation of vitamin C. But with aging, illness, or poor diets, for example, our requirements for oral vitamin C increase. We then come to a primary divide where we cross over from oral vitamin C to intravenous vitamin C. This is a big divide and no amount of oral vitamin C can become equivalent to intravenous vitamin C. Oral vitamin C gives us blood levels in the micromolar ranges, while intravenous vitamin C gives us blood levels in the millimolar ranges. This is a thousandfold greater concentration in the blood. It's like trying to jump from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other. It's impossible. Something happens when vitamin C is given in the vein. It bypasses the GI tract absorption, the gut absorption. IV vitamin C then becomes a drug once it's given in the vein. And though it may retain some of its vitamin properties, it now becomes what's called a prooxidant when it enters the space around the cells. And this happens through chemical steps called fitin chemistry. It reacts with something in that extracellular space to become hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide is the drug 
and vitamin C is the prodrug in this case. We have shown this in our research and it has now been reproduced multiple times throughout the world. It is the production of hydrogen peroxide that makes that secondary divide, that grand divide that you can't jump over from oral to IV. When patients are ill and come to the clinic for IV vitamin C, a lower dose in the 5 to 15 gram range may be helpful. But as patients become sicker and are perhaps hospitalized or at, even at the worst in the ICU, it is our belief that hydrogen peroxide is doing the job as an antiviral or antibacterial drug. Said in a different way, the vitamin C when it's given in the vein gets to a very high level in the bloodstream. And because of this, it's forced into that extracellular space. There's enough of it to go out of the bloodstream to diffuse into the extracellular space, that space around the cells. And it's in this space that the magic happens. It gets converted into hydrogen peroxide. And it's the hydrogen peroxide that's causing the antibacterial or antiviral activity and this has also been shown by our research to cause cancer cell death as well. When vitamin C is given in the vein, but the doses are less than 15 grams, let's say 5-7 grams of vitamin C, significant hydrogen peroxide is not formed in these low doses, even in the IV vitamin C. You get a little bit of hydrogen peroxide formation but not enough to do the damage to the viruses and bacteria and cancer cells. So we consider IV vitamin C given at doses under 10 grams to be low, very low dose and probably not helpful in the treatment of sepsis, for example. And we're going to explore those sepsis trials in the future. Some of us believe that the dose of vitamin C was not adequate for the treatment of these seriously ill patients in the ICU with sepsis. Said in a different way, IV doses under 15 grams are low dose IV vitamin C, not high dose vitamin C, while doses above this range, even up to 100 grams, produce significant hydrogen peroxide to be used as an anti-infective agent. Again, our research has shown that increasing doses of IVC result in increasing blood levels of vitamin C that are able to get into the extracellular space to be turned into hydrogen peroxide by Fenton chemistry. It is a very linear response. The higher dose of IV vitamin C, the higher the production of hydrogen peroxide. Think of it like vancomycin antibiotic that needs to be given at a one gram dose every eight hours for methicillin resistant Staph aureus or MRSA. If you only give one milligram, you will not be able to get an adequate blood level of vancomycin to fight the MRSA. This does not mean that the vancomycin is ineffective as an antibacterial agent. It only means that the wrong dose was given. Therefore, you can think of intravenous vitamin C in the same way. The dose is critical and has to be on the right side of that divide. Another very important part of the infusion of vitamin C is that infusion rate. That is how fast the vitamin C is given. It can't be given too slowly or that blood level won't get into an adequate peak. And it really shouldn't be given too quickly 
because it will peak very quickly and leave the bloodstream very quickly as well. We have shown in our research that the infusion rate is critical and the IV vitamin C should be given at approximately a half a gram to one gram per minute. That means a 50 gram dose can be given between 50 and 100 minutes. Another issue that we have shown repeatedly in our research and has been replicated by others around the world is that these high doses of vitamin C given in the vein are very safe. And this, of course, as we discussed last time, you have a normal G6PD enzyme, adequate kidney function, and no history of oxalate kidney stones. And we have given tens of thousands of doses safely, both in research projects and in our private clinic practice. I want to highlight the importance of hydrogen peroxide one last time. Some people believe that the improvement seen in patients with severe disease and perhaps in the hospital or in the ICU have scurvy, and that's probably true. That's been shown by some of Anitra Carr's epidemiologic research. But while IV vitamin C can fix scurvy in these ill patients, it's our hypothesis that these higher doses are producing hydrogen peroxide which result in the anti-infective and anti-cancer effects. To recap, vitamin C given by mouth, oral vitamin C, is a vitamin with many wonderful properties. But if you need that anti-infective, antibacterial, anti-cancer effect, you're going to need to give IV vitamin C, and those doses of vitamin C should be above 10 to 15 grams to show an adequate response and produce the hydrogen peroxide, which is the drug causing these effects. Well, let's segue now into discussing the use of intravenous vitamin C as an anti-cancer or chemotherapeutic agent. This history began with Linus Pauling and Euron Cameron, and they collaborated, as you heard previously. And these efforts continue to the current time. It's been difficult to gain traction in the research of IV vitamin C as an anti-cancer agent because of those negative Mayo Clinic trials that you heard about. And I'll recap that quickly. The Mayo Clinic decided to run randomized placebo-controlled trials using vitamin C in first heavily treated patients and then under the behest of Linus Pauling in newly diagnosed cancer patients that had not been heavily pretreated. So the vitamin C was given as a placebo and it was given orally. It was not given intravenously. Whereas Ewan Cameron, the Scottish surgeon, had given his patients IV vitamin C as well as oral vitamin C. So there is where the problem occurs. And you now know that you can't use oral vitamin C as an anti-cancer, anti-infective agent Primarily, it needs to be given in the vein. This was not well known until the research of Mark Levine. Because of Mark Levine's pharmacokinetic research, looking at the difference between oral and intravenous vitamin C, there began a resurgence of interest in using vitamin C as an anti-cancer agent. There were case reports that were published, and phase one and small phase two trials, of which we've participated in a number of those, and these have been largely funded by private foundations. 
the uh, federal funding, funding from the NIH, for example, is practically non-existent because of the controversy and the ongoing misinformation and misunderstanding that resulted from those outdated Mayo Clinic trials. The way forward is to continue this translational research that we've begun, that is basic science research in cell tissue and animals, and translating that to the clinical patients. Because of these translational studies, we're beginning to understand the mechanisms of action and the biological pathways. It's a very exciting time. In spite of these difficulties and controversies facing the use of IV vitamin C in our research agenda, research and the use of cancer therapy continues around the world. The preparation, administration, and dosing of intravenous vitamin C varies, but the practice of intravenous administration is constant. It is now known from multiple research, including Levine and his colleagues, that only IV administration of vitamin C bypasses tight control and gives plasma and tissue levels that are greater than when oral vitamin C is used. And we know that the kidney excretion is fairly constant. Uh, we're just about ready to publish a pharmacokinetic study that demonstrates this. This is the fundamental tenet of IV vitamin C administration. It's the dose and the infusion that make the drug. Another fundamental tenet, as I will repeat often, is that intravenous vitamin C at the correct doses produces adequate amounts of hydrogen peroxide that act as a prooxidant, giving that killing activity for viruses, bacteria, cancer. With these understandings and supported by our new mechanistic pathways, we are learning how intravenous vitamin C acts as a chemotherapeutic agent and shows synergism with conventional cancer treatments. That is, the vitamin C, because it's a prooxidant and doesn't act as an antioxidant in the case of using it in the vein, it will work hand-in-hand -hand with the conventional prooxidative cancer therapies. This is very important to understand. Many oncologists believe the use of intravenous vitamin C will give a huge dose of an antioxidant that will quench or stamp down the effects of, it, of the chemotherapy, but this is not accurate. It's a misconception. Our group and many others have produced a number of scientific reports, but what happens in these reports is you lose the nuance of how vitamin C should be administered to patients, let's say in an office setting, in a clinic setting. That's not really appreciated when the patients are treated inside research projects. You lose some of that story of the patients. And those of us who were trained by the pioneers, I was trained, as I mentioned, by Hugh Reardon, we learned by sitting with the patients and observing their reactions during IV administration and documenting the progress of their disease or the lack of progress at sometimes observing their reactions during the administration of the intravenous vitamin C. So you learn to make decisions about dosing by listening to and observing the patient. You know, after all, this is about patients, not about paradigms. I want to add another very important part to this story. 
Intravenous vitamin C does not act rapidly in cancer when it's given as a chemotherapeutic agent. Therefore, patients at the end of their lives and heavily pretreated with chemotherapy and or radiation therapy rarely benefit from intravenous vitamin C. Rather, intravenous vitamin C therapy is to be used early in the process of cancer treatment and can be considered an adjunctive therapy with chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. Because it appears to act slowly, several months may pass before benefit is seen through the reduction in tumor markers or on imaging. Giving doses sporadically, let's say a couple of times over a month, is not a fair trial to determine a patient's response to intravenous vitamin C. Rather, Consistent administration two to three times per week at a minimum of two to three months is required before repeat imaging and tumor markers are reevaluated to determine the response. I also want to give a nod to our naturopathic colleagues and, of course, Hugh Reardon, who preached this endlessly that the terrain of the patient must be prepared to fully accept these life saving therapies during cancer treatment. That is, a good diet and good lifestyle practices must be maintained during cancer treatment. We've also found, as an aside, something we call the feel-good effect. When giving IV vitamin C, there seems to be a mood lift, a mood elevation, and we really haven't studied this in detail. Another important component of proper administration of intravenous vitamin C is the concept of dose escalation. I learned this from Hugh, but also found in patients, if you start off with too high of a dose, sometimes they have a a bit of a side effect. So beginning with a lower dose, for example, a 25 gram dose, initial administration is given to assess that patient's tolerability to the infusion and to prepare them for the experience. The dose can be escalated to 50 grams at the next infusion, for example, but the critical step is to evaluate the patient's plasma vitamin C level during dose escalation. And we know in cancer, initially, Dr. Reardon and some of the early pioneers like to shoot for about 350 to 450 milligrams per deciliter of vitamin C in the blood as a target plasma dose to affect cell killing. And then when Kay Chen did some of her cell tissue work with cancer cells at the NIH, we found that there was a usual cell killing around 20 millimolars. Now, some of the tumor cells, of course, were exquisitely sensitive, and some of them took much more dosing than would be around that blood level. But that 20 millimolar or the 350 to 450 milligrams per deciliter blood level is really a good concentration to affect cancer cell killing. Individual patients with very different tumor types have varying requirements in the amount of vitamin C that is necessary to hit this target plasma level. So I often get asked the question, what dose should I give for lymphoma, for example? And it's very difficult to say because different patients will have different requirements to get that blood level. And different tumors, solid tumors, for example, may require a much higher dose. We found in our ovarian cancer patients that anywhere from 75 to 100 grams 
was generally the dose that seemed to give a good blood level of vitamin C. Typically for drugs, particularly chemotherapeutic agents, they rely on the milligram per kilogram dosing schedule and it's more productive to follow the plasma vitamin C level than to simply say that a dose should be given at uh, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, for example. And this plasma level, this vitamin C level in the bloodstream, can advise the amount of vitamin C given to that patient and guide targeted plasma levels that could be therapeutic, anti-cancer, anti-infective, etc. Well, that being said, how important it is to get a good plasma level, it's very difficult to measure vitamin C levels. That's because there's rapid oxidation and disappearance of the vitamin C in the plasma and blood specimens. When drawing the plasma to get a vitamin C level, it's what's called a critical frozen. That is, the specimen needs to be drawn, placed on ice, and analyzed immediately. Otherwise, the vitamin C, as I mentioned, oxidizes and disappears from the blood specimen. So you can't have a patient in the clinic that you're going to draw the vitamin C level then set it on the counter and send it over to the lab later because you won't get an adequate vitamin C level in that sample. It'll simply be too low and or completely negative, disappear. And I've had clinicians call me and say, I'm giving 100 grams to this patient. I can't seem to get their blood level up past 50 milligrams per deciliter, for example, instead of the 350. So they think they need to keep escalating the vitamin C when in fact it's a measurement error. I was very lucky in my clinic because Kay Chen was right across the corridor from me, not too far. And when we had vitamin C samples, she would send one of her lab associates over with dry ice. We'd collect the blood, put it on dry ice, and it'd go immediately over to her lab for evaluation of the vitamin C level. Well, we know that that's not possible for most doctors in their clinics. What we did was try and figure out another way that the vitamin C could be measured. We hit upon a really convenient way to test the plasma vitamin C, and this is because of a well-known lab error that occurs when patients are receiving intravenous vitamin C. In brief, while obtaining a finger stick glucometer reading, that's that typical finger stick method that diabetics use to test their blood sugar, that glucometer will read vitamin C as glucose. So the reason this occurs is because the vitamin C molecule looks very similar to the glucose molecule. So vitamin C, ascorbate, and glucose are somewhat uh, related in appearance. In fact, in one of my studies, I had a diabetic patient who was in the hospital and she received her IV vitamin C. And afterwards, her nurse checked her vitamin C level by finger stick glucometer. And because she'd received the IV vitamin C, the glucometer read that it was a very high glucose reading and the nurse gave insulin without checking with anyone. 
And the patient, of course, did not have high blood glucose reading, but high vitamin C in the bloodstream. Because of the insulin, the glucose level was dropped really low. Fortunately, the patient did well. She did okay. You can exploit this lab error. I think it could be considered an error. You can exploit this lab error by using the glucometer at baseline before the IV vitamin C is given. So let's say the patient's blood glucose at baseline was 100. Then they receive their IV vitamin C. Let's say they get 50 grams. And as soon as that IV is turned off, as soon as that infusion is done, immediately resample the blood glucose reading with the glucometer and then subtract it. Let's say the reading of the blood glucose on the glucometer was 450 after receiving the intravenous vitamin C, but you knew their blood glucose at baseline was 100, so 450 minus 100 gives you 350, and that represents the amount of vitamin C in the bloodstream. For anyone who's interested in reading more about this, Kay Chen and I have a paper in the scientific literature uh, studying this effect in patients and comparing it to the blood samples taken uh, concurrently. Of note, if you have a diabetic patient and you're worried about their elevated glucose after vitamin C, send them to the lab for a blood drawing of glucose. Do not use a glucometer to follow the blood level of glucose. I want to emphasize that this is just a ballpark estimate of the plasma vitamin C in milligrams per deciliter. So this isn't really as accurate as doing a blood draw and an HPLC evaluation, but it will give you a ballpark figure and be able to guide your dosing of vitamin C in the clinic. If your plasma vitamin C is not in an adequate range of 350 to 450 milligrams per deciliter, then further dose escalation is necessary. For example, if you've given 50 grams and your plasma level is only 280 milligrams per deciliter, this would not be considered in therapeutic range. So the next dose uh, you could increase to would be 75 grams. And the reason we go up in blocks of 25, 50, 75, 100 is because the bottle of vitamin C is usually dosed at 25 grams per vial. And because it's so safe, these escalating doses are not worrisome. So any dose of a drug is designed to produce a plasma and hopefully at the site of action concentration most likely to produce the desired therapeutic effect and minimize adverse effects. And this is determined by several factors, but the most relevant is the volume of distribution. So the volume of distribution like blood or plasma volume, organ size, or other anatomical and pharmacologic factors is in some way proportional to the body size or mass A standard adult or pediatric dose is based on the average size of the child or adult. With drugs that have a wide therapeutic window that is a very good safety profile, the average value of administration is safe. 
for drugs with very narrow therapeutic windows or index, such as cardiac glycosides or warfarin, for example, one size definitely does not fit all. These are the cases where dose normalization is most commonly employed. So then you use the normalization by milligram per kilogram or body surface area. Because vitamin C is almost entirely cleared by renal excretion rather than hepatic clearance by cytochrome P450s, this occurs rapidly over several hours. It is satisfactory to dose by incremental escalation and rely on plasma vitamin C levels to guide dosing. I want to highlight the infusion rate one more time. In our translational research protocols, infusion rate is timed so that we give about a half a gram per minute. Therefore, when we start at a 25 gram dose, we usually infuse that over 50 minutes, for example. However, in clinic practices, there are many infusion methods for vitamin C, including IV push via syringe, IVC by gravity, by drip method, or uh, by pump. As I mentioned last time, some of the older pioneers had administered their vitamin C intramuscularly, and that's because of the difficulty giving IV infusions. I'm not going to dictate how vitamin C should be administered, but I do want to highlight the fact that if vitamin C is given too slowly, let's say one gram infused over an hour or even eight hours, the effect is really going to be negligible. So that half a gram per minute to one gram per minute is really preferable if you're looking for anti-infective or anti-cancer effect. And the next thing I'd like to emphasize is the dose. I really want to hit this again. You know, it's inconceivable to many uninitiated practitioners that 100 grams of vitamin C could be infused in the vein at one sitting. Yet, it's been known for decades that the administration of high-dose vitamin C is safe. And this has been confirmed in more recent research, both at our research institution and others around the world. So for patients seeking intravenous vitamin C for therapy, I would highly recommend seeking out someone who's been trained and is knowledgeable in the proper administration and dosing of intravenous vitamin C. Uh, One way to try and find someone in your area who's been trained is to look at the American College for Advancement in Medicine.org, ACAM, ACAM.org, or the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, AANP, or the International College of Integrative Medicine. Generally, these organizations list members who are trained in intravenous vitamin C and the administration of other high-dose vitamins and minerals. I want to emphasize one more point that I get asked frequently is when to administer the intravenous vitamin C with chemotherapy in a patient with cancer. And we have looked at the administration both on the same day with chemotherapy and on alternate days from the chemotherapy in research projects and have found that it really doesn't matter 
when the vitamin C is given, it does not affect the the treatment with chemotherapy. It does not cause the chemotherapy to be less effective. In fact, we found that it's actually either additive or synergistic with chemotherapy and its actions. So what we've been doing is recommending whatever is convenient for the patient. If they've got a, a long time to spend in the clinic on the chemotherapy day, they could use the vitamin C as their fluid loading dose and then get their chemotherapy following. Our colleagues in Iowa have also shown that intravenous vitamin C can potentiate radiation therapy, again, because of the pro-oxidative effects of intravenous vitamin C. So again, not to worry about giving intravenous vitamin C with radiation therapy. Yet there is much more preclinical and translational work that needs to be done, and we would hope that the federal funding stream from the NIH would recognize that this is mandatory given the amount of intravenous vitamin C administered in this country every day. I would like to conclude now by just recapping a bit that historically intravenous vitamin C use both in research and in the clinic outside of research project has been remarkably controversial. In Jungblut's era, further research was shut down by a published report that used insufficient doses and orally administered vitamin C. Although the research was halted, the therapy did not disappear entirely as practitioners during the following decades used both intramuscular and intravenous vitamin C as an antiviral, antibiotic, anti-cancer, and generally as a tonic. It was adopted by orthomolecular therapy pioneer Linus Pauling, and he advocated for its use in cancer treatment after collaborating with Ewan Cameron. But once again, incorrect research approaches using insufficient doses with oral administration of vitamin C yielded negative outcomes, and of course you know this is the Mayo Clinic trial, and the use of IV vitamin C was dismissed as a therapy from the late 70s forward. These errors in research design came to light with insights provided by Mark Levine and his colleagues, and this was contrasting oral dosing with IV administration. IV administration of vitamin C is not dependent on gut absorption, therefore is able to reach high plasma blood levels bypassing this tight control at the gut. IV vitamin C administration is considered a drug and has been referred to as pharmacologic ascorbate. While oral vitamin C is under tight control at the gut for absorption and its blood levels are considered a vitamin. There continues to be practitioners around the world giving both IV and IM vitamins, including vitamin C, in a variety of doses combined with a myriad of other molecules and give it rapidly or slowly for a number of conditions. Patients continue to seek out these therapies. Connectivity of modern populations suggests that this won't be halted anytime soon. Yet there is a paucity of research to determine if benefit exists. Because of the use and in consideration of patients, 
federal funders should cast aside their dated prejudices from prior poorly designed research and look with fresh eyes at more recent translational research pointing in a new direction. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Next time, we're going to go through some typical questions that I get asked by patients and practitioners alike. This will not only be about intravenous vitamin C, but about oral vitamin C as well. Until then, thank you for joining me on the art and soul of healing. And a special shout out to the Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms. Go to alliancefornaturalhealth.org and become a member today.